0: Amen. Um, Not looking for any affirmation or anything here, but uh, last night I I was praying about this morning. We'll be in Ruth too. Praying about this morning, I felt like the Lord was was saying, hey man, you gotta calm down when you're preaching at a marriage conference. And uh, I just get so fired up, man, when it comes to marriage and family. It's something that I'm, I guess from working in student ministry so long, uh, yeah, I just, I, I feel like as a society and as a culture, um, men have failed miserably. Um, but, but then when really when I think about throughout history, that's kind of the story of history is the failure of men. And so, um, so I just get excited. I, I get, I guess my, my uh, cardiologist told me that I'm very intense. And um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what he said, literally. Um, so I so I prayed last night. I, I I was up restless, not sleeping much, and this morning I was up like, okay, Lord, calm down and go through Ruth 2. <laughs> so we're going to go through Ruth 2 in a very calm manner this morning. It's going to be incredible. Um, it's not going to be very intense. It's going to be uh, very instructional. So turn to Ruth 2 and uh we we finished we dropped our story off last night with uh with this introduction to a guy named Boaz. I actually read the first verse of chapter 2 last night and uh reason I did that was because if you take the last verse of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2 you get this glimmer of hope into the future of what's coming. So Naomi has in desperation she's she's followed I believe the Lord's leading back to Bethlehem. She had a husband that failed to lead spiritually. So even though there's not many pieces of her life left to put together, she's gonna to put those together enough to, to be obedient to the Lord. So she goes back to Bethlehem where she knows God's favor rests on his people. And so these two verses, the end of verse one and the beginning of verse two, they give us this, this little glimpse of sort of like a foreshadowing of what's coming. And one, one of those things is, okay, there's a harvest, a barley harvest, and there hasn't been a harvest in a decade. And so God has visited his people. And then when you get into the beginning of uh, chapter two, we're introduced to this man named Boaz, and it's a stark contrast the way he's introduced to the other men that we've seen in the story so far. The men we've seen in the story so far are Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, and Moab. And all four of those men were men who did not follow the Lord, did not honor the Lord, were not worthy men. And so Boaz is introduced in chapter one as a worthy man. It says that Boaz was a worthy man. And I, 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 I was kind of, man, I was wrestling through like, okay, I want to give these guys some examples of worthy men. What is a worthy man? I was thinking of men in my life that are worthy, you know, when I was growing up and uh, really only ever had one man that I kind of looked to as a as someone I wanted to emulate and be like, and uh, and we still to this day he lives he lives in Texas, but to this day we talk. I, I call him, and and he would say, it's funny. He would say, "Oh no, man, I'm you're you're more mature than me spiritually, and uh, I'm just a simple, you know, I just love Jesus." But he just this man was worthy to me, and 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 uh, and to this day I think he's far more mature than I'll ever be spiritually, but I don't. I I was like I have a lot of peers in my life that, but but when a man is 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 worthy um, in the Bible, what it's saying is that he's a man who, there's several characteristics that that, that that is implying. One is that he bows before the Lord. He worships the Lord. A worthy man bows before God. So as worthy men, we need to bow before the Lord. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to be concerned only with what God would have for us to do and be. Uh, additionally, a worthy man is someone who leads others well, who leads others well. So uh, as, as a man, I'm called to lead. Some of you men, your jobs require you to lead. If you're in law enforcement or military or something like that and you've climbed the ranks, then you, you really kind of have a capacity to understand what that looks like. Uh, if, you're, if you're self-employed and you don't really have any employees, you work on your own, maybe it's a little harder to grasp that in the framework of, of your job, but, but all men are called to be leaders. And so a worthy man leads well, even just within his own home, within his church, within his community. I was hanging out backstage with a little guy that is in our community right now who is in, uh, who is in the custody of the state, and, and he's being fostered here in our community right now, and he spends a lot of time with my family, and we're hanging out backstage, and right before I came out to preach, and I was just telling him how much I love him, how much I'm proud of him, uh, and I thought, you know, I've got to make sure that I'm leading people in the community, who no one's going to realize that you're leading, if that makes sense. I, like I spend time with that little guy, man. He he needs he needs a man to look into him and, and look into his life and say, hey, you matter. You're a big deal. You're important. And so, men are leaders. A worthy man is going to be a leader. Uh, and then, additionally, a worthy man is someone who's going to um, who's going to govern their own desires, their own their own lives. Going to rule themselves. The Bible tells us in Romans. Uh, in Romans chapter six, Paul six and seven, Paul is writing to the Romans, and he says, "Don't like don't be enslaved to your own desires for fleshly things. Don't don't be governed by your members, by your physical body. Don't let your body control, um, like like the lust of the flesh control you. So a man of God is going to rule himself. That just we rule ourselves by submitting to Christ, and so." going to be governed by himself uh, or, or by the Holy Spirit within himself. And so Boaz is all of those things. So we're going to see some more characteristics about Boaz as we get into the story. But but you've got this stark contrast. Those are things that are contrasted against specifically Elimelech, the man who moved his family to a foreign land for financial gain or for uh, because he had a lack of faith and just out of a survival mindset, whatever whatever reason, w- was really driving that. Boaz is the opposite of that, and we know that Boaz is about to bring, bring in, haul in a big harvest. You know, he's a farmer, and so he stayed faithful to the Lord throughout the years of that famine. He didn't leave during the years of the famine. <clears throat> he stayed faithful to the Lord, and he, he remained in Bethlehem for a decade of famine, and that was a uh, that, that was a big statement to us about what kind of a man he is contrasted against Elimelech. So let's pick the story up, verse 2. Um, we'll, we'll read verse 1 again. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character. Okay, so some of you, I'm reading from the CSB this morning. I'm really digging this translation of Scripture lately. Um, but I think in the ESV it says a, uh, a worthy man, I believe is what that says. Okay, a worthy man. <clears throat> From Elimelech's family, so he's a he's a relative of Elimelech. Again, I don't want to I don't want to try to read too much into the text, but this uh, there's a good I think there's a good small nugget here that the failure of men in your life and your family don't determine your faithfulness in life. So like he's in the same family as Elimelech, but and Elimaleh has failed spiritually. And this man is contrasted against that. I think a lot of men, they allow the failures of their father to dictate and determine the way they're going to live their own lives, and it should not be that way. Your life is lived before the Lord, before, uh, before the Lord and before him alone. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess uh, asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? There's that word favor again, the loving kindness of the Lord. She says. Let me go and try to find food for us uh, among the fields, and maybe the Lord will show me his mercy and loving and kindness. Now, she's talking about gleaning, and what gleaning was is this is like literally, uh, no exaggeration, um, this was the original welfare program. This was like a system where poor people could go into the fields of wealthy landowners or farmers, and uh, farmers were instructed by God's law. This was according to God's law, they were instructed to leave a little bit of of food in the field for these people to go gather. So they would, they didn't go stand in line and get a free handout, they would go work. And if they were willing to go work, then they they could get food that way. And so oftentimes the people that would do this would be immigrants, widows, orphans like older orphans people that were basically in survival mode there was a system in place where they didn't go hungry they would be fed by the goodwill of the 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 general um, populace and so she's saying I'm going to go find a field and I can glean and I can get food for us in that field Naomi answered her go ahead my daughter so Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters she happened to be, play on words, one thing you'll find the author of the book of Ruth, he, he loves to, I think, insert little funny things that if you're not paying attention, you'll miss. We, we talked last night about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, that God is, is sort of guiding the affairs of men. And so it's like she just happened to show up. And it's really this play on words that God led her there. God guided her to this place. God was working to bring her to this place. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. First words that Boaz speaks in the story tell us a lot about him. He shows up and he says, the Lord be with you to all of his employees. So he speaks a blessing to his employees. So we learn just from the first words he speaks, he's already been described as a worthy man. First words out of his mouth are words that edify and point people to the Lord and encourage. We as men, I think it's it's very important that we take this as a lesson and a challenge that our words matter. And the way we talk and the way we you ever been around somebody that's just negative. Every time you're around them, they complain. Every time you're around them, they tell you how bad they're like, "How are you doing, man? Oh, I shouldn't have asked him that he's that guy that is going to tell me how he's doing, and it's going to be really bad <laughs> He doesn't look like he's missed a meal, but apparently life is really bad for him you know like it's we we live in sort of a complaining culture, you know, like oh, let me just tell you you don't you can't even imagine no, apparently i can't imagine because it doesn't seem like your <laughs> life is that bad for you right now, and so this is this is like uh like a good reminder that our words carry weight. So the first thing we see about this man is that he's a man who speaks a blessing over his people. This was a, an Israelite blessing. The Lord be with you. Yahweh be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. So we know that he's a man who is respected and revered among his employees and his peers. So he's got influence. He's used that influence in a positive way. And these people speak back. And they they speak back very positively. Um, and so... Uh, verse four, later when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he's, he's coming out to the field from Bethlehem to check on his people, to check on his workers, to check on his, uh, like his operation. So let me give you some quick facts on Boaz at this point. Uh, six quick facts on Boaz. Number one, he has a job. If I was speaking at a at a singles conference, and I've actually spoken on this story before uh, to teenagers, um, and I would tell the ladies um, if he doesn't have a job, you should, you, you should halt all interests, okay? Like, like manhood 101, work. <laughs> like there, There's a need for a man to have a job. So Boaz has a job. That's pretty important. We don't know what Elimelech was doing over in Moab. I guess he had employment, but uh, Boaz has a job. Number two, he loves Jesus. These are two characteristics we encourage our daughters and the young ladies that come through camp to look for in a man. First two questions. Does he love Jesus? Oh, yeah, he loves Jesus so much. He's crazy about the Lord, man. He just loves the Lord. He has a two-hour quiet time every day. Does he have a job? No, you know, he's put out a lot of resumes. He's just looking for the right fit. Okay, so he's 50%, and in manhood, that means 0%. Okay, like, like that. all right, so Boaz has a job and loves Jesus. These are like, these two have to go hand in hand. Um, but let me tell you something else about Boaz. As the story unfolds, We get to verse 5, and it says this, Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? The servant answered, she's a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. Now, this is critical. This section of the story, these 10 verses, I'll give you two really big principles that I think are super helpful for us. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field. Don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they're harvesting and follow them. Haven't I, uh, haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you so that you noticed me, although I am a foreigner? This is very important because what Boaz is doing here is he is providing for her safety and security. Now, here's why that's so important. It would be important for any young lady, but a Moabite in Israel is especially vulnerable. She's especially vulnerable. Why is she so vulnerable? Because the Israelites looked down at the Moabites. And if I could just be so brazen, so brazen, as to draw a parallel into our culture where oftentimes americans look down at those of immigration they have a sense of superior i'm not implying that any of you have this i'm not pointing a finger but as a society we tend to look down on immigrants god had made provision for the immigrant to be provided for the person who doesn't have a home the person who's trying to better themselves and 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 move into a new land that's very very uh, unnerving and destabilizing. And, and so the, the, here, here is a Moabite who is living in Israel. She's especially susceptible. It's not political. It's not a political statement. It's not anything to do with politics. It has to do with like Christianity 101, that we take care of the alien, the widow, and the orphan. This is what scripture teaches. And so here's this person who's very susceptible. What, what is she particularly susceptible to? Anything. Oh I, I was like literally she has no security in this land. She doesn't have you know, like there was no this wasn't the day of green cards and passports. There was no legal immigration process other than a confession to follow Yahweh, to follow the God of the Israelites. And I was thinking about uh, when we were we, we had to stay when we were adopting our two youngest children, we had to stay in Uganda for, for several months and I remember meeting the, uh, these people that were that were doing. They were doing a ministry where, and they were Ugandan, and they were doing a ministry where they were trying to rescue these ladies. These girls would, they would, they would believe they would get conned into traveling to South Africa, and they would get on these trains and in these bus or these uh, trucks, and they would tr- they would get smuggled to South Africa, and they were told that that if, when they got to South Africa, they were going to be given paperwork and a really good job, and they were going to make like $10 an hour at a place where you know, $10 a day would have been good money for them where they were. They're going to go to this place where they're going to make really good money. They're going to work uh, consistent jobs, and it was, it was sort of this lie, and they would get them down there, and then they were basically being trafficked. It was a re- and it was a really big deal. It wasn't like, hey, I heard a story. It was like happening in droves. And so this ministry was trying to work to, to stop that from happening. That's kind of what we're talking about. It would be, she was very susceptible to being taken advantage of. She's starving. She has no family connection except a bitter old woman who won't leave the house. She's like in a bad, bad situation. And so uh, Boaz looks at her. And he immediately in the story begins to emerge as a protector. Now, why is that so important? It's important because when God instituted the responsibilities of a man in Genesis 2, he said a man is to be two things, a provider and a protector. So two things a man is to be. He's to provide physically, spiritually, and emotionally. He's to provide spiritually, physically, and emotionally. A lot of men provide physically. Well, my kids, they've got nice clothes. We live in a nice house. Uh, I've got, uh, they've all got a phone. They've got, all got a car. And so they provide physically. Providing physically makes you a decent man. But providing spiritually makes you a Christ-honoring, Christ-like man. And so as a provider... Boaz is beginning to emerge as a provider and a protector. He's going to provide for her, but he's also going to protect her. In Genesis two, God said, you're to work and keep. You're to provide and protect. That was Adam's job, and man had been failing at that for generations. And so Boaz starts to emerge as a provider and a protector. That's the two things he's emerging as. And so uh, in this situation, what you've got is something akin to like workplace protection for her, but he's he's basically saying, don't go glean somewhere else. It's not safe in other fields. He knew something that we don't know, culturally. He knew something that we don't know, and we can assume that in those other, this was, you can imagine a bunch of single young women, many of them probably orphaned, who had no family support out gleaning in these fields in remote rural areas? You think they were pretty susceptible to some things that, yeah, absolutely. It was a bad situation. So he said, you stay here. Now, here's what he's doing. Let me give you a couple of things here that we see about Boaz. Number one, I don't know if you know Boaz's family lineage, but let me go back in the story of Israel here for just just a couple generations. See, when Israel left Egypt and they came into the land of Canaan, the first city that they assaulted inside the borders of Canaan was a city called Jericho. You might be familiar with that story. Now, get out of your mind the VeggieTales version of Jericho, where you got these sarcastic little French peas throwing slurpees and slushies off the walls. Have you seen that? Right, it's not how it went down. Okay, uh, Jericho, Jericho did not stand a chance against the Israeli war machine. There's this, there's this mindset. When I go back in my childhood to flannel graph, we, so many stories got, were gotten all wrong. Like that David was this weak little boy who just sort of by fate slung the rock. Saul sent David down there knowing that if David lost, the entire Israelite nation would be enslaved. So the King of Israel saw David in a foreshadowing as the true king and deliverer of, of Israel, and sent him out to fight Goliath because David was a man of valor he was a man who was proven in battle already okay so we get a lot of times we we, we, we miss the details because we let flannel graph define our theology okay so in the story of Jericho what you 've got is the the Israelite war machine has just conquered and defeated in battle a ten king. Ten army alliance, all right, led by these two these two kings called Sihong and Sidon and Og, or some crazy, I mean, like crazy barbaric names, okay. And they conquer them, all right. Now, so next on next on their hit list is this city called Jericho, which is the gateway city into the land that God has promised them. In Jericho, you got a very barbaric pagan culture. It's dark. It's it's it's. It's, it's not anything that we can probably really imagine. It's a gateway city in a barbaric pagan land where child sacrifice was normal, where prostitution was rampant, where women were trafficked. It was the only, like, like, basically they were objectified by the entire society. And there's a woman there who's a prostitute just basically trying to survive. And you may have heard of her. Her name is Rahab. Have you heard of Rahab? Rahab is a prostitute living in Jericho. Prostitute living in a pagan barbaric land, okay? Rahab hears the story of this ma- nation of people called Israel. And the way she hears it is because the leaders of Jericho, her city, are talking about it. Man, there's this nation, and they're, they're conquering people, and they're coming our way, and nobody stands in their way. They're going to assault our city. We're in trouble. And people are freaked out. You can read about this in the book of uh, Joshua, chapter 2. Two through, six, two through five. They're scared to death. And so, so Rahab cries out to this God for deliverance. And God sends two men into that city. They're unnamed. These two men go into that city to meet Rahab and to, and to prepare for her an extraction plan. So we're going to assault this city, destroy this city, but we're going to extract you and your family because of your profession of faith in Yahweh. Y'all with me? Story sounds a little different than probably what you've heard it. Go read it. Check my work. Go read Joshua two, three, four, five. Okay? Just telling you what the book says. All right. So they go in. Why do they go in? To spy out the land. Why do they need to spy out a land that God's gonna collapse the walls in on itself? They're never going to step foot in that city before God delivers the city, right? So why do they go into the city? Because she has confessed. There's this powerful confession of Rahab where she says, I know that your God is the one true God, and he alone can deliver me. Will you call on your God for my salvation? And they do that. And so they rescue her. They conquer this city. Rahab comes out of the city. Well, there's this family line of men, and they come in the line of Judah, okay? Now, Judah... Has a son. Oh, y'all, this gets so Jerry Springer. Okay. <laughs> Judah has a sexual relationship with his widowed daughter-in-law. You know that story? Her name is Tamar. All right. So Tamar has a sexual relationship with her father-in-law after her. Husband dies, his son dies, and and she has twins. Their name the, the one twin's name is Perez. I'm going to keep the names to a minimum. Perez. Perez becomes the man through whom God raises up a lineage of warrior chieftain leaders in Israel. And so he has a grandson named Amminadab, who has a son named he has one grandson named Ram. That's a cool name. Like, I don't know, it just sounds like a dude, you know. And so <laughs> Aminadab. Aminadab has a son named Nashon. Nashon is the chieftain of Judah. When the Israelites would assault Canaan, Judah was the first. They were sort of like the first onto the beaches. They would storm the beach first. The war leader of Judah was a man named Nashon who would literally lead those men in battle. Nashon had a son named Salmon. Okay. Salmon was a man of valor, a man who was worthy in combat, who fought as a leader in Israel. Salmon says, Oh, here's this prostitute we just rescued out of Jericho. I don't know what her condition was in the, like, what her status was in Israel, but Salmon's like, I'm going to marry that woman. So he marries her. So he marries a pagan prostitute, which makes sense. His great grandmother had an affair with his great-great-granddad. Like, he doesn't, like, his moral compass is different. He's like, I don't care what people think, you know? Like, he's, he, they're a family of renegades. Renegades, like, they push back against the sterile culture of their society, probably. So Selma marries Rahab. They have a son together whose name is Boaz, the Boaz that we've been introduced to in this story. Everybody tracking so far? So Boaz grows up in a home where his mother is a former prostitute in pagan Jericho. You think he cared about the safety and security of a Moabite widow in a foreign land who's an immigrant? Yeah, that hit close to home for him. He grew up with his mom telling him at the supper table stories about what it was like to live in Jericho in the darkest culture, in the darkest hour of history up to that point. He, t- he, he grew up hearing his mom say things like, son, you make sure you take care of the widow. You make sure you look out for the orphan. You make sure that you are a man who honors women in a culture that often pushes them down and dishonors them. So Boaz was raised for this. He was ready for this. He was trained for this. And so what he's doing is he's saying to Ruth, you stay here on my farm. At this point, there's zero inclination for us to, to, there's no inference that he has like a romantic affection for her. In fact, with his background, what we can infer is that he just wants to provide safety and security because that's the kind of man he was raised to be. The reason there's no real inference is because he doesn't act on this. He doesn't do anything to pursue a relationship with her for the next eight weeks, which is the harvest season. you got to get into chapter three before anything happens. And then her crazy mother-in-law has her put the moves on him, and that's how the thing goes down. <laughs> like, like At this point, Boaz is just straight up a man of honor. All he's doing is saying, I need to provide security for this woman. She is destitute. You stay here. You glean here. So that's the first, that's the first observation. Second observation is this. The law demanded that men provide or that that landowners and farmers provide for the poor by leaving them some food to glean from okay he's going above and beyond the law and when we go above and beyond the law we find ourselves standing in grace when see when you live to the letter of the law you're just doing what god required and nothing more he goes beyond that and so grace is being extended. He's not saying, well, the law requires that I gotta give her some scraps from my field, so I'll give her some scraps from my field. He's saying, that's what the law requires. If that's the line where the law is drawn, I'm gonna step way beyond that that line and I'm gonna issue grace to her. See, that's what Jesus does. Jesus, the Bible says in Romans 10, he is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 10, 4. He's the end of the law. He's the completion of the law. And what we now receive is a covenant of grace, not a covenant of law. So it's very clear in the gospel that we are loved by God simply because of the grace of God, not because we've been able to adhere to the law. So Boaz is reflecting very much Jesus in this story. Verse 11, Boaz answered her, Everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. See, at this point, what, we're learning some stuff about Ruth, too. She's a hard worker. She went out early in the morning. She's labored. It says she stood on her feet all day. She only stopped to rest when she needed water or refreshment uh, just to keep going, just to keep going. And then her reputation has gone in front of her. He's heard of her. It's been fully reported to me how you left your father and your mother and your native land and how you came to people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now what's he doing? He's praying over her. John and Spicy challenged us yesterday morning to pray for one another, men particularly, to pray for our wives You've got Boaz, she's not his wife, she ain't even his girlfriend. He's not even got eyes on her at this point. But he's a man who is, like, so much of his character is emergent, he prays over her. And with this, here's what he's doing. He's praying for her, but he's acting in accordance with the prayer. Prayer is empty if it's not followed by action in our marriages. God, please be with my wife, help her to love Jesus more. Well, then I need to work to help, to, to, to be an answer to my own prayer. Does that make sense? I'm going to pray for my children. God, please preserve them, protect them, guard them, keep them. Ladies, please, Lord, guard my husband, guard his eyes, give him freedom from from addiction to to pornography or money or materialism or from, from an illicit affair at work. You're praying, you're praying, you're praying, but then you're acting upon those requests and and petitions that you're making towards god in the cultivation of the relationship men we're praying for our wives we're praying for our sons and our daughters and we're standing at their bedroom doors and we're praying over them but then we're acting we are engaged in their lives so boaz is praying for her but he's taking action he's not saying lord would you please provide financial stability for my family and then staying at home and not working, in other words. He's, he's action, his, his action goes with his prayer. His, he's acting on what he's praying. So he's a man of prayer, but he's a man of action. My Lord, she said... I have found favor for your, you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I'm not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters, and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. This is like a really good meal. I was, I was, uh, you've, you have been in a situation where, you didn 't have a good a good hot meal, like I don 't know if you've ever been in the back country, this is what I always think of. If you've been in the back country, it spends several days you spend four or five days a week or two in the back country, and you're living off a mountain house freeze dried stuff and, and like uh Ramen noodles, and that stuff's great, it's fine. But you do that for six or seven or eight days, and you're, you know, you're hiking around, stomping around on an elk hunt or something like that, and you, and you come out, me and my buddy, we came out of the woods last year. We'd been backcountry for several days, about a week. We came out, we went to this local like, little restaurant in this tiny little town, and we ordered a steak that came from a cow. It was made out of cow meat. It was a ribeye, which is the best cut because it has fat in it. Fat is good. (laughs) We ate and we ate and we were satisfied. Then we went across the street because they had ice cream. (laughs) And Christians like steak and ice cream. And I'm a Christian. (laughs) So... (laughs) But that that food after eating you know a bland diet you know we were we' were like just oh man like she's she has lived off of the grain that she's been able to gather just a very bland diet and now she's eating he and not only is she eating she's sitting at his table and he's serving her what is this a picture of Jesus he's serving her it's roasted it's the best food he can provide he's brought her to the table it's a beautiful picture. Of the way Jesus loves us. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather among the bundles and don't humiliate her. He's just continuing to provide that protection and grace that goes beyond the law. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into town. She's she a stout girl. 26 quarts. Let's see. Right. An Ephah is what it says, probably in your Bible. 26 quarts. There's four quarts in a gallon. Is that right? Math is hard, man. So four times four into 20. Four won't go into 26. Six and a half. That's math right there, ladies and gentlemen. Six and a half gallons. All right, I know this. A gallon of water weighs eight pounds. Six and a half gallons of grain, I don't know what it weighs, but let's say it's comparable. 50 pounds. Oh, no, Ruth now. She's she been doing some squats now, some pressing. <laughs> Off to town. She probably could have took care of herself out in that field. Somebody would attack her. She picked up the grain. She wasn't no dainty girl, you know. She went, oh, she was like this girl. She, she'd get it done. Picked up the grain, went into town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left from her meal and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law who she had worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. This is cool. Naomi's faith is being restored. This is a woman who lost her husband. Lost her, lost both her boys. She was depressed, basically Job, ready to, you know, Job's wife, ready to curse God and die. She is, and now because of the faithfulness and the testimony of this new believer who's converted and has shown such faithfulness, now Naomi is worshiping the Lord again. It's a very powerful lesson for us that our lives and our testimonies are going to affect others. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. You don't have time to really get into that right now. I'll come back tonight to Red Oak Church here. and We're going we're to cover the rest of the story. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So, so Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it's good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So if we continued the story, what we would find out is that eventually Boaz marries Ruth. They have, a, they have a son whose name is Obed. And Obed will become the father of Jesse, who will become the father of King David. And that is the line that Christ will come through. So, a really powerful lesson for us that Jesus entered into a very scandalous line of people. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't enter the world into a line of kings. I mean, there were a few kings in there, but there were also some pretty shady characters. And it's a reminder that when Jesus became one of us, he came in as the lowliest of men. He infiltrated the ranks of sinners. And redemption is the idea that God infiltrates the ranks of that which is broken and sinful and brings with him those who were captive to that and he sets them free that's what the gospel does and boaz is the foreshadow to who and what christ will be and so i wanted to just kind of look at the story uh in closing and 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 look at uh some applications for us men five applications for us that boaz gives us as a picture of biblical manhood and three for the ladies um the men, we need more help, and so we get five, and the ladies get three. All right, so Boaz is a picture of biblical manhood. He's worthy. He's a man of prominence and a man of valor. He's a worthy man. We, we unpacked what that was earlier. We looked at that. Number two, he's a rescuer. Godly men who reflect reflecting Christ are rescuers. Rescue those who, and what are we talking about rescuing? We live in a fairly safe society. Um, we're rescuers in the sense that those who are in need, those who are destitute, those who are broken, the orphaned, the foster child in your community, the broken family in your community that you can minister to—you minister to. You open your home, you bring folks into your home. You like like that. Oftentimes in our home, I'm sad to say that type of ministry is driven by my wife. I need to be better about being the one that's that's going out and and bringing people into our home, into our kitchen, to sit at our table, but to be a rescuer and to, to love those who um, society does not love. Number three, he's not shaped by the culture around him. And when we think about that, we think, oh, I'm not shaped by culture, I, uh, culture going to hell in a handbasket, this country we live in, you know, it's easy to kind of say, yeah, I'm not like the rest of the culture, but, but we are often shaped by things like the American dream, and that's very Cultural. That's very cultural. So we're going against that. I'm saying there's something bigger than what the world offers me and the culture offers me. Particularly, he was a countercultural, a true cultural revolutionary because at a time when people were abandoning the fate, because see, in the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And for Boaz, what was right in his eyes was to obey and follow Yahweh. There's always men of God in every society and culture where the gospel is present. There's always gonna be men of God who shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of society. And Boaz is one of those guys. Number four, he carries out grace that goes beyond the requirement of the law. Men, for us, with our wives, this is important, with our wives and kids, that we're seen by them as men of grace, men who extend grace, men who show grace, men who cover them with grace, Ephesians 5, we saw this Friday night, says that our number one priority for our wives is their sanctification. My number one responsibility to my family is that they become more like Jesus. And that will happen through my influence or in spite of my influence. See, if my wife is a Christ follower, she's going to become more like Jesus because he who started a good work in her will be faithful to complete it. And he will use me or work in spite of me to do that. My sons and daughters who come to faith in Jesus, they will become more like Jesus because he's the one doing that work, and he will work through me or in spite of me, and so I want to work to carry out grace in their lives. And lastly, number five, he doesn't hold Ruth's past against her. He doesn't bring up her past like, oh, yeah, well, you're from Moab. What the heck, man? You're a Moabite. You were married to that dude whose name was smallpox, (laughs) He he never, like we never see him. In fact, when he alludes to her, her past, it's only to praise her for her faithfulness, her work ethic. He's an encourager, and he only looks forward. He's constantly looking forward. We're looking forward. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus, and we're looking forward. Ladies, Ruth is a picture of humble faith in action. Number one, she's humble. Just look at her response to Naomi each time they interact. She submits herself to Naomi. She's very humble, but she's a woman of action. She's working. So the second thing is that she's willing to do whatever she had to do to provide for herself and Naomi. She puts her hands to work, focuses on Jesus, is humble, is a hard worker, and trusts the Lord to take care of the details. Trusts the Lord to take care of her future. Trust that God will provide for her. And number three, the last thing, she, she continually and constantly acts in faith. She's a woman whose faith takes action. So you've got a man and a woman here who are eventually going to come into a godly marriage, and both of them are people of faith, but that faith has feet and legs and arms and a brain, and it drives forward with a deeper, growing knowledge of God and takes action, 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 and they make a difference in Israel, probably as great a difference as any family has ever made in one society. I think there's a lot we can learn from them, so let's learn it from them let's ask God to give us wisdom. I'll pray and we'll close with a song or two. I think we're going to close with a song or two. I think. If not, somebody will come up here and tell us what we are going to do to close. All right? Sound good? Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And I pray that uh, we, as we learn from Ruth and Boaz, we would learn and, uh, in such a way that we would take action and we would try to be more like Jesus by living out more the example that they've set for us. I thank you for this incredible story, and I thank you for the, the second half of the story where we see such a, an incredible picture of the way that, that you love us. I pray that um, men and women here would, would be able to go and follow up with that story and, and, and continue to study and see how you bring about um, your, your good plan in, in the lives of these two people. We love you a lot, and I thank you for what you're doing in the lives of these couples and families. And, I pray that you would be glorified in in our lives as we go from here, that we would be different as a result of having spent this time together and with you. In the good and strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.